0: It's teaching us about the gospel, what it is and, and how to put it to work. And so we're in the, the section of Galatians that's telling us how to get along with one another. And the only thing that matters is faith in Christ, working through love. And it's this kind of love that says, well "I need to love like my Savior, who put himself on a cross." And so that, that's what Paul is going to help us work on this morning. Because that's what the Holy Spirit's job is. That's what we looked at last week as we went through the fruit of the Spirit. We had a farming metaphor. It says that there is a power in you that will grow, that will produce that kind of love in you, that in every Christian, there's there's a Christ-like love waiting for the circumstances and for the Holy Spirit to come together and to bring growth in you, which is good news (laughs) because I can't do this on my own. So let's read our text, and then we'll pray and we'll get started. It's Galatians chapter 5, 25. This is God's word. Paul says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, and not in in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. And this is God's word. It's absolutely true, and he gives it to us, because he loves us. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, you, the gospel teaches us that we are loved despite being unlovable. <laughs> and so I ask this morning that, that as we study this text on how to love one another, that your spirit would come and soften our hearts, would open our eyes and unstop our ears to show us the beauty of our Savior, to see the reality of the gift that he has given, that we would be so moved to pick up our cross and to love those around us may your spirit do his work in us this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. So we've been talking about this, that this whole section, Paul's telling you that the gospel sets you free to love one another. And so Martin Luther has this great way of putting it, that the gospel sets you free so that you are subject to no one, and yet you are bound to serve everyone. He's saying, it's you're not set free to go off and party and do whatever it is your, your, your heart desires. It says your heart's problem has been, your heart's been the problem all along. And so God said, now let me rewire your heart so that you bind yourself to one another. And that's what the Holy Spirit's job is. Is to take the work of what Christ has done, keep it before your eyes to then shape your relationships. And so in 5.13, Paul says, through love, serve one another. And then the rest of this letter is working this out. And that's the section we're in. That's what we're going to look at this morning. So even though there's a chapter division, those aren't inspired. Uh, If some dude on a horseback just marking it, uh, this is a connected thought. So that's why we did it that way. All Paul is saying here in our text is let us love one another. It sounds so simple. And yet, it's so difficult. Uh, there are two famous places in the Bible that talk about this kind of love. We sang one of them this morning, First Corinthians thirteen, right, the passage that we usually read at weddings, and everyone just melts because it's so beautiful. But if you hear what it's saying, it's it's almost crushing. The love is patient, love is kind, love n- keeps no record of wrongs. It's not arrogant, nor is it rude. It's not irritable, grumpy, or resentful. It endures. All things. That's not easy. Or first John four tells us God is love. And you know you love God if you love the people next to you, is what he says. And then in first John Four it says, What does love look like? He says, This is love that God first loved you and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so love looks like God Himself giving himself up for us. So as we get into this, this is not a sentimental kind of love. This is not Barney the Dinosaur singing, why don't we just hold hands and, and love one another. Um, this passage is difficult to, to see it lived out in real life, to see it lived out in our neighborhoods, uh, in our communities, in our, in our workplace, to see the gospel bear fruit. Where people say, why would you do that for me? And so as we look at this, we've got two concrete pictures of love. This is the introduction here. In six one, you have fundamentals of how do you care for for someone who's been caught in sin, who's done something. They were surprised by what they've done. Caught unawares. What do you do? Do you watch them go down in flames? (laughs) Do you read them the Ten Commandments along with the covenant curses? Or do you get involved? Right, or in 6 2, this is another kind of loving and caring. Paul says we should care for th- bear one another's burdens, which is this whole idea of getting involved with those who are suffering. The weak, the downcast, <sighs> the burdened, those who are crushed by life. Get involved. Right, so I'll give you an example. Remember Naomi, the book of Ruth? She and her husband lived through a famine. They had two sons. They, they fled the country of Israel and moved to Moab. Uh, it's not a popular place. Um, and you know while they were there, they were told that, that Naomi not only lost her, her husband, she lost her two sons. And in the ancient world, to lose your sons and your husband was to be completely alone. It was to lose your whole retirement package. She was broken, penniless in a world that did not care for women, that did not have a, a welfare system in place to care for them. <coughs> what do you do if that's your friend? Do you stay away or do you get involved? So Paul says, as we read our text, that we who have the Spirit, who are walk, those who are walking by the Spirit, do not have an option to stay away. He's saying, bear one another's burdens, confront those who are sinning, restore them in gentleness. And the way God does that is by sending you and me into the lives of sinners and broken people and burdened people. And I, Like I said, this is hard. It's God is really saying to me, this isn't just for those in ministry, right? This is for all in, who are Christians. He's saying, Look at those people who are hurting and go hug them. They may be wrapped in barbed wire, but go anyway. <laughs> so let's look at this. It's, well, verse 26 of chapter 5 is going to tell us why this is so hard, right, why love is difficult, why this kind of run-to-somebody-instead-of-run-away-from-them kind of ministry is so difficult. And then we'll look at specifically what these ministries entail so point one why love is difficult is verse 26 let's look at it actually let's do 25 and 26 you need these together if we live by the spirit let us also walk by the spirit let us not become conceited provoking one another and envying one another so the first picture we have why love is difficult is provoking don't provoke one another and the first image that pops in my head is is uh One sibling runs by the other and just slaps him in the back of the head. (laughs) (laughs) But really, the the word picture is somebody uh, from a place of superiority wants to challenge somebody to show the world how great they are. That's provoking one another. It's to be so sure that you're awesome that you're constantly having to prove it to one another, to someone else. So you're always arguing. You're always looking for a debate. You're always bragging. It's a superiority complex, as we say. That I'm up here and you're down here and I want you to know it. That's provoking. Um, people who aren't too fun to be around. But then the other side of, of this problem is, is envying one another. And envy is the opposite, is that I'm down here and you're up here and I want to be up here and I'm mad at you for me being down here. And it's saying uh, I see you as someone that I'm not good enough and I want to be like you. Your life. Your talents, your gifts, whatever it might be. So it's, it's an inf- inferiority complex. It's the opposite. See how that works. And generally, I mean, we we all go back and forth between both of them. But generally, this is how we enter into all of our relationships as human beings, as sinners. I meet somebody, and we we play this game. I don't know if you do this, right, but we all do it to some extent. Am I better or worse than you? Where do I fit in in the the structure? You know, we, It's like moving to a new school. Where am I going to sit? What lunch table will I be welcome at? Um, how do I know I'll be welcomed? And so we enter we a relationship saying, either I have to puff out my chest and to prove that I'm okay and that I'm worthy and we can be friends, or we hide and stare at our toes and say, I wish I could fit in. This is true everywhere you go. I was at seminary. It's true of pastors, men preparing to be pastors. Um, I wasn't the guy to go out and pick a a theological debate because I know I don't think as well on my feet. uh, There were plenty of guys who would. And so we had that relationship where I would let them talk and try and challenge me and say, okay, buddy, I'm going to go to work. It's it's just sin. Somebody who wants to challenge, somebody who wants to say I'm okay through my knowledge and Me saying, uh, I want to be okay, I wish I could argue like you, but I can't, so I'm going to run away. It doesn't build relationships. Um, You can apply that anywhere you go. Envy, conceit, uh, envy and provoking. (coughs) Losing my spot here. And this problem, what Paul calls it, It's actually conceit. He says that getting along, loving one another, uh, provoking and envying actually flow out of conceit. Let no one be conceited. And what does that look like? Provoking and envying one another. And this is why relationships are hard, why love is difficult. Because this is what the King King James translates this word pretty literally. I don't know if anyone still has one of those on them, but it calls it vainglory. Since we don't talk like that, we talk about it and use the word conceit. But it's a really helpful diagnosis word. It tells you, um, it tells us what the problem is, is our hearts as we go and enter into relationships vain, empty, glory. And so think about it this way Have you ever been to one of those fun house mirror rooms? <laughs> right? Where where you go and you got the, m- you may be four foot tall, but you stand in front of the mirror and it paints you like you're Yao Ming, seven, seven foot tall and huge, or distort your body size or your big head. And and it's, vainglory is like having, is looking into one of those. To where you look in the mirror, and because you want to be somebody, you see yourself differently, not as you really are. Either as greater or lesser. It, it makes you bigger or smaller stronger or weaker it's wanting to matter so much that i think i'm either great or terrible and that's vain glory and paul says we shouldn't have that Let's dig into this a little deeper I know glory in the Bible, glory is just... N- the only way we use the word glory anymore is probably in sports. Right, those are going to live in immortal glories. They're going to matter because they've won a championship, even though they have to prove themselves again next year. Uh, glory in the Bible is about significance. It's about weight. What Paul is saying that the problem with relationships is that when we get up in the morning, everybody is distinctly aware and has this fear that I don't matter, that my glory is vain, it's empty. And then we begin our day trying to prove, prove otherwise. This isn't a select group of people. This is, this is everybody. This is human beings. It's painful. It's real. I mean it's, Vain glory is everyone grasping for significance ar- around us, which is why life is so competitive. Why I'm so concerned with what you think. And Paul says if we're gonna have genuine love for one another, we can't have vainglory. It's not gonna work. Because it makes true love impossible because when I come into a relationship, I'm either gonna use or abuse you. You're either gonna make me feel better about myself or worse. But either way, when we get into a relationship, I'm not gonna see you. I'm gonna see what you can you do for me lately. So if that's the diagnosis for what's wrong with human beings, why community is so hard, how could Paul tell us to just knock it off? <laughs> right? Stop it. It doesn't work that way. But you look, We read verse 25. He says, if you're going to do this, those who are walking by the Spirit <coughs> are showing you that we have the resources to let go of this vain conceit. We have the resources to love one another to see our neighbors as they really are. <coughs> C.S. Lewis has a great way of putting this in his uh, essay, The Weight of Glory, If you haven't read, you should. Um, but he says, just, just by virtue of everyone being human, this is how we should think of one another. That my neighbor's importance, his glory, should be a burden on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting cr- person that you may talk to will one day be a creature which if you saw them now, you would be tempted to worship right, in glory. Or they're going to be such a horror and corruption that it like meeting a nightmare. But either way, they're, they're immortal. And so every day, in some degree, we're helping one another to each of these destinations. You have no ordinary people You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nature's, art, civilization, these are mortal, but their life to ours is just like a gnat. And so when you hang out with your friends, it's immortals we joke with, work with, marry, snub, exploit immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. And so the holiest object you will ever interact with apart from God himself is your neighbor. And if he's Christian, even more so, because Christ is in him truly hidden. That's a bombshell. He says a lot. He's saying just by virtue of being human, being made in the image of God, everybody has significance. Everybody has glory. Everybody's eternal. You're either going to heaven or hell. And so you matter, and they matter. If you're a Christian, they have Christ himself dwelling with them even greater significance. Hmm. And that's what we're talking about here. Paul says, let there be no vain glory. Why why would you look for glory from anything else other than what God has made you? This is what sin has taken away. So we're stuck in this cycle of feeling superior or inferior. When Paul when the the scriptures tell us you have all the glory you already need think about it the gospel itself the Lord of glory James calls Jesus he moves in and what the Holy Spirit does as we've talked about already in Galatians he cries out Abba Father which means you have glory you have weight you matter news the way to get rid of vainglory is to understand the resources you have in the gospel When Paul says you have the spirit now walk follow him and what the Holy Spirit's going to tell you to do is look at what Christ has done look what he did to give you to show you that you are more significant than you are aware of Jesus saw you having more glory He saw you as being more significant than himself. We'll put it that way. To the point of death on a cross. And he did that. One, he shows us what our sins and our inferiority and our superiority deserve. Because if if we run into a relationship, this is just how relationships work. Think about it. If you're provoking and envying and not getting along, and you sin against somebody, the natural thing to do to say to somebody who's hurt you is to say, Go away. You don't belong here anymore. I'm going to protect myself. And what Jesus did on the cross is to take that punishment that what God should say to us, You don't matter to me anymore. Be gone. That's what he cries. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eternal abandonment, experiencing the full weight of vain glory. You know, we, it tells us in the Gospels that Jesus only suffered for three hours, but anyone who's ever experienced relational agony know that it was an infinite torture. Because if, if an acquaintance runs off on you and, and betrays you, it's it's painful, yeah, but you can get over it. The more intimate the relationship, the more painful it is. Uh, the pain of divorce. Um, probably one of the most painful things you could ever go through. And when you see Christ dying on the cross for you, he's bearing an eternal weight of abandonment with the r- his heavenly Father that he's known for all of eternity. Also that you can know one, what our punishments deserve, and that you could see how much, how significant God sees you. How significant in his eyes you are. Because look at the cost. He served somebody who hurt him, who provoked him, who wanted to be in his place, who wanted to play God, who envied. When you let go of his superiority, he to come down and to serve. This is Philippians 2.3 where Paul says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. And then let each one of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interest of others. And this mindset is yours in Christ Jesus. And then what did he tells you exactly what Christ did. <coughs> he let go of all desire for glory. He did not consider equality with God something to be hold on to. And he came down as a servant. The most significant came all the way down. Lower than the lowest servant. So Paul is saying, if you do not know that, you will not be able to let go of any conceit. It's going to be like trying to fill up a balloon with a leak in it. If you try and say, I'm okay because of who I am, because of what I do, to give myself glory the air is going to leak out and paul's saying unless you know that you have an <coughs> eternal importance and an eternal significance to god himself to be loved to be cherished <coughs> conceit's going to control us it's going to control me paul's really saying don't try this at home without the holy spirit <laughs> Because if you don't, you're not going to have the resources to persevere, to to be patient, to be kind, to bear all things, to not be arrogant, to not be rude, to see the person next to you. And so, I know I'm expanding on this, but Paul really is saying, love one another as God has first loved you, in the Spirit, by faith. Because the only thing that matters is faith working through love. And the things we're supposed to do, this is point number two, is we have to confront one another. Alright, so here's somebody who's caught in sin, somebody who's broken God's law. Uh, alright, this is this is not just your run-of-the-mill. I mean, there's sin here in this room right now. As Paul isn't saying we should get out our, our magnifying glasses and see what we can find. That's a never-ending job. <laughs> um, Saying somebody who's been caught. Like that woman in adultery that we read about earlier. What do you do? Paul says you should confront them. You should restore them. All who are spiritual. What does he mean by spiritual? Does it mean it's just for the pastor? The, The elite? No, it's for all those who have the Holy Spirit. He uses the same word to describe the Spirit. So if you're a Christian... If you have the Holy Spirit, we have this obligation to one another to restore one another after being caught in sin. Without any sense of superiority, well aware of the fact that I too could fall. Watch yourself lest you be tempted. It's p- pretty amazing. Alright, so there's important distinctions here. Here's what Paul says. One, A Christian should confront one another. One... And I already said this, that if we're going to do this, we can't get out our magnifying glasses and and go and tell everyone that they're doing everything wrong. Uh, I mean, this is, you see it in communities. Somebody publicly gets angry. It just takes over them. What are you going to do? Just gross moral sin, public failure, uh, immorality. Sexual sin. All all the things listed in chapter 5 in the works of the flesh. It's important, too, to see that Paul is describing a relationship between Christians. I mean, these principles will apply to, to confronting those outside of the church, but not as well. It's assuming you have the relationship to be able to speak into their lives. Because if you're talking to a non-Christian, somebody who doesn't know Jesus, yeah, you should be gentle, you should be kind, but their biggest problem is whether or not they know Christ, whether or not they have the Spirit in the first place. But th- I mean, this is a situation. Someone we know and love has done something unexpected, sin caught them, and we just were to restore them gently. And so the way I experienced this at school is one of the somebody we knew and loved and respected fell publicly. And what an amazing act of grace was, one, there was a public confession, because it was public. And then everybody in the chapel, the professors, uh, the students, we just got in a line and hugged the guy. I dunno, it didn't fix the problem, it didn't take away the pain. but It was restoring in an act of gentleness. And this, wor- this word restore, this command here, it's a specific word. It means to set back into place a bone that was broken or dislocated, to put it back the way it was, to bring them home. That's what it's saying, but it's using medical terms. Alright, so picture it. Well I dislocated this finger in high school playing basketball. It wasn't this way. It was kind of like this, like a Nike swoosh. Yeah, it's gross. And People have different, different reactions. My friend said, "Ooh, I don't want to look at that. Get away from me. That's not very helpful. (laughs) Left alone, infection, more pain. I mean, it was just a dislocation. But I think worst case scenario, it's going to get worse. And my coach was kind enough to get involved to painfully set it back in place by popping it back in. This is the, the metaphor, the image. being caught in sin is like having a dislocated bone, and we need somebody to gently come along, knowing it's going to be painful, and restore us. Because if you leave them alone, infection's going to set in. They're going to walk away. It's going to get worse. Get involved. Bring the gospel to the situation. Apply it yourself. No, I could too could do this. It's in here. And sit, and sit at the cross together. Weep for the consequences because the, the consequences are still going to be there. But the whole goal is restoration. I mean, this is what Martin Luther said to another pastor on how to care for someone who fell. He said, you should run to him, you should reach out their hand, your hand, raise him up, comfort him with sweet words, and hug him with motherly arms. He said, we have an obligation in Christ to one another to not leave one another alone. Caring for a sinner the way Jesus cares for us. What does he say? Does anyone judge you? Neither do I. Go and sin no more. It's the fundamentals of caring for one another. That's part one. It's we're we're called to get involved in the mess. Second, the other uh, third, the third point, we're also called to bear one another's burdens, to get involved in suffering. It's it's pretty obvious here that Paul is a realistic picture of what Christians are going to go through. We're going to go through sorrow, loss, poverty, um, failure, debt, depression, sickness, disease, divorce, all kinds of difficulties. We're not immune. And Paul says we're to bear those burdens together. That Christ died, and when the Holy Spirit comes and dwells with you, he's giving you bigger shoulders than you realize you have. (laughs) And when you do that, you're fulfilling the law of Christ. So if you put 6-2 alongside of chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, where Paul said before to in love, serve your neighbor, love one another, in love, serve one another. And in doing so, you're going to fulfill the law of Christ. He's just saying, this is, this is what Christ is calling us to do. And the beautiful thing about church is you're brought into a family and not left to deal with things alone. Right, that God is a God who delights in steadfast love is what we talked about this morning. And then he puts us together so that we could care for one another. Meaning that when God wants me to be loving and kind and patient and to bear all things and endure all things and to figure all these things out, he, he, he gives me you. You can turn to your spouse and say the same thing. You can say the same thing to your children, um, to your coworkers. <laughs> Alright, who's at the, the movie Office Space? Somebody who's got a case of the Mondays and there's this l- lady on the, f- the phone on the Monday. You know everyone's grumpy on Monday. She's just got this high-pitched voice, and she's just answering the phone over and over and over again, and Paul, (laughs) the gospel is telling you those kind of people, they're there to teach you about how to love somebody different than you, to show you how God deals with you (laughs) and me. So we're called to embody the gospel for someone love sacrificially by coming near to be able to bear someone's burden you have to be right next to them right, if they're carrying something you got to be close enough to share the load right. remember Naomi she says she's all alone she's got her daughters-in-law um, one of the most amazing statements of love for another human being comes from Ruth this is what she said to Naomi it Somebody who's grieving herself. She would have, I mean, in our minds, we would say she has all the excuses to stay alone in her misery. But this is what Ruth says to Naomi. She says, don't urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And may God kill me or do even more if anything but death separates me from you. What an amazing statement! And Ruth says, "I'm not going to bear the, I'm not going to let you bear the burden of widowhood alone. I'm not going to leave you alone." And in doing that, she used the same words that got the covenant language that God speaks to us. Ruth's just reflecting the love that she knows God has given to her. Right, it's this kind of love. That's what we're called to for one another. It's Samwise Gamgee in Lord of the Rings. And his master Frodo trying to take the ring to destroy it in Mount Doom. Can't, can't go anymore. He can't even walk. The burden's just crushing him. And Sam gets down. He picks him up on his shoulders and step by step carries him along the way. in love, carry one another. So I say, you can't do this alone. You can't do this without the resources of the Holy Spirit, without the gospel carrying you, filling you first. Nor is any of this possible with vain glory. Cause look at verses 3 through 5. I think Paul's working this out here. He says, if anyone thinks he is something, when he's nothing, he deceives himself but let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself and not in his neighbor for each will have to bear his load. I think the big idea of what Paul is telling you here is, is the gospel sets you free from comparing yourself to one another so that we can get close. So when you see someone else's warts and bruises and tears and frustrations, you don't freak out and run away or come down with the full weight of the law, or say, I have nothing to say to you helpful. It's just, no, I have the gospel, I can go. I can wipe away the tears, I can weep with them, I can bear the cost to love somebody because I have a love that's already filled me in Christ. Is that your story? This is what verses 4 and 5 are about. Telling us to not compare ourselves. It's the fruit of conceit. Let me put it this way. God has works of bearing burdens and restoration that only you can do with the resources that you have. Isn't it good news that you are not called, that God is not going to hold you accountable for the way you care, for the way that I should be caring for someone. I have a different set of responsibilities than you do. I'm the pastor. I have different relationships than you do. One of the things that I think Paul is trying to get us to see is that we deal with God, first and foremost, the only eyes that matter are our Father, who's pleased with us, who's put people in our lives to love And he's saying, don't worry what the person next to you is doing. Because one of the things I I think the gospel should make us more aware of is that the person who's struggling could very well be more faithful with the gifts that they have been given than I am in my prosperity. Because each one, each person is going to be held accountable. So, make this a little more clear, at the end of all things, when Jesus returns, that's what Paul's hinting at here, and he's going to right all wrongs, and judgment day is going to come, and I am summoned to the king, Jesus, I don't have to worry that Jesus is going to say to me, I can't believe you are not as good as as pastor as Jim Farinacci, (laughs) or anyone else in the presbytery, or, or Tim Keller, or some spiritual superhero, I can't believe you are not I can't believe you didn't bring revival to Boston Spa you know, like they did 200 years ago. Oh, Paul saying that God is going to hold me responsible for the things that he's called me to do. And at that day, God's either going to say, well done, thy good and faithful servant, and heaven will rejoice and cheer, or he's going to say, depart from me, I don't know you. And the beauty of that day (coughs) is that when we get there and God does say to you, well done, thy good and faithful servant, to all those who put their trust in Christ, we're going to look at him and say, what are you talking about? (laughs) I didn't do anything without your help. Here's my crown. I'm going to lay it at your feet. You take my honor. You loved me first and we're going to spend the rest of eternity laying down our significance at someone else's feet because our ego will finally be full <laughs> in heaven, a world of love. Samuel, Samuel Rutherford, an old Puritan pastor, wrote this when, he said when we get there on that day. He says the bride is not going to look at her garment. He's going to look at her bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at the glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he's giving, but on his pierced hand. For the lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. It's Just saying, if we get there, we know the grace got us there. It's at his cost. And the goal for the church then, God's plan for the church, is that we would be able to look at one another and say I too would not be here if God had not put you in my life. To pop that bone back into place, to set it, to restore me, to stand next to me and cry, to have big shoulders. This is a big call, and so my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would take the relationships we have. And teach us to love one another as God has loved us first in Christ. May God by his spirit make these things true of us. Let's pray. Oh Father, the, the commands you gave us are quite simple. <laughs> love one another, bear with one another. Um. And yet uh, we all know our hearts that we are, f- are full and are tempted to chase after vain glory. And so I pray that y- that we would learn learn to walk by the Spirit, to see all the grace that we have in Christ from beginning to end, that sanctification is a work of you making us loving like our Savior, and that we would learn (laughs) our happiness, but it's an opportunity to serve. May you bind us then to one another as uh, as you grow us, as you mold us into the image of your Son. So make Hope Church a loving place, a welcoming place where sinners and sufferers know they are welcome. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.